0: Well, this is uh, incredible. I don't know if anything has been done like this in the history of Lubavitch. So first of all, I just want to thank Hatomim Yasef Rapoport and Hatomim Yasi Radl for making this happen and for bringing me here. As we were coming up, the, I haven't been to this to this uh, compound, what do you call this, it's more than a building, there's multiple buildings here, this uh, estate, I haven't been here yet. Um, and so this is my first time seeing what was built here. And as we're coming up the driveway, it uh, definitely put me in the camp. Spirit to be out here with uh, the vast, sprawling nature and the green grass and the trees. Um, I'm sure you, you've heard a story about the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe Rashab in uh, Germany, actually in the, the town of Wurzburg, and there was a an imperial garden. It's called the uh, Kaiserlich Garten. And this was a place, obviously being the royal garden, where only the elite, only the government officials were allowed access. And then, specifically in the garden, there was, seems like some type of a gazebo that was only for the ...for Kaiser Wilhelm himself. And... ...apparently the Rebbe Rashab... ...this was before World War I... ...this was Tufresh Samech... Zion, 1907. And... ...the... ...Rebbe Rashab told his son... ...the Feidic Rebbe... ...who he was traveling with... ...that he wants access to this garden... ...and specifically to the gazebo. And the desk, and the chair where the Kaiser himself would sit, which was obviously not a simple thing to arrange. So the, the previous Rebbe spoke about, this actually is a sicha, Shemini Tafresh uh, Pei. It was before Beis Nissen, before the Astalkis of the Rebbe Rishab, but apparently it was a custom that even in the lifetime of the Rebbe Rishab, Shemini the Fidek Rebbe with Fabreng. So this was the Fabreng and then, and he told this story about how he uh, befriended the guard. He started off, he gave the guard a very large coin and asked the guard to buy him a drink. And then uh, when he brought back the change, which was obviously, you know, it's like giving, giving somebody a hundred dollar bill and saying, buy me a can of Coke. So, you know, you end up with a $99 change and he told him, eh, keep the change, that's for you. So he befriended him, and he, I don't know how long the entire process took, but eventually the Fedek Rebbe was able to get this guard to not only let them have access to the gazebo, but he would, he would stand watch and make sure that no one would, uh, would see. And uh, the Rebbe Rashab went into the, the gazebo, and he sat, there was a writing desk, and he sat at the desk, and there was special royal paper, and there was a special royal pen, a desk, a chair. And the Rebbe Rashab sat at that spot and clearly was very uh, enamored with the, whole, with the whole situation there. And uh, then he sat and he wrote Chassidus. Apparently he wrote the Mimer from Hemshech. Samachvov, he wrote the Mimer V'Yetze Ish M'Bes Levi and later on the Rebbe spoke about this the Rebbe also referred to this story and explained how the Harchova Begashmias just having such physical comfort and such uh, bounty caused a psichas hachushim which literally means an opening of the senses in the Rebbe Rashab, which enabled him to, to write this mimer, which has very, very deep concepts in it. And that Bagashmi is having uh, comfort, physical comfort and, and, and bounty and, and uh, being, in a, being in an atmosphere that physically is, is pleasant, has a very deep effect, has a very deep effect on a person to, to the extent of being able to bring out latent powers that would otherwise not be revealed. So uh, I'm telling you this story because, first of all, I'm thinking of this as we're coming up the driveway, and I'm experiencing psichas and then we had the ribs, and I had more psichas <laughs> And a lot of things here that are opening my senses, and it's very baruch Hashem. I could, I could get used to this, and. <laughs> but, but but the reason I wanted to tell you the story is. Because, it's a real thing. It's a it's a real thing, and it's. Uh, this explains why it's a real thing, that sometimes you get out to a, a relaxing place. You get out among nature and quiet and beautiful scenery and, and it has a profound effect on a person. It can, it can have a, a very healing effect, a very soothing effect and, and it can bring out potentials that otherwise we would not have been able to tap into. So the idea of camp, the idea of being able to get away and go to a place that's open and there's fresh air and there's nature. and well, you're having a good time, and you're with friends, and there's there's a spirit of fun. It it's it's nicht <laughs> it's not a triviality, it's a it's a big deal. It has a very powerful effect on a person, even a child, maybe even especially a child. So um, I think maybe it's it's worthwhile for us to consider. <coughs> Excuse me. I think it's a little bit. Uh, it's a good. It's a good use of our time. It's worthwhile to think about, to try to understand a little bit. Um, what what an experience like camp actually does for a person. There's there's a there's a Menachem of, the Rebbe's father's yard site, obviously. Tough Shinmem Gimel. And there were campers there and counselors at the Fabregen. So a portion of the Fabregen that Rebbe spoke about camp. And uh, it's very interesting. One of the things that Rebbe says about camp is that. First, he starts off by saying, you know, there are, you might not know, but there are schools that have either, they have shorter hours in the summer, or they completely close down in the summer. There are such places, the Rebbe says, there are such places. Could you imagine that they have shorter hours, or they even shut down during the summer? Rechmona Litzlan. The Rabbi uses the term, Rechmona Litzlan. So you're reading this, and you're like, this is a terrible thing. We've got to open up all the schools, 12 months a year. This is terrible. The Rebbe is obviously decrying this as a, as a real problem, a real issue. But <laughs> you've got to read. You know, it reminds me, they say, about the Litvak who was learning Bava Kama. And he came to the first Mishnah. He says, Arba Aves. He stops and says, Arbo Aves. There's three Aves. There's three so, someone said, read the next word. He said, ah, I like to learn bi'iun. <laughs> like, okay, you guys don't get the joke. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, you know what the next word is? arbo avis Nezikin. It wasn't the, re- okay, whatever. I don't, not going to explain the joke to you. Okay. All right. Anyways, you got to read another word and then you're going to find out what it's talking about. So, if you would just take that keta of the sikha, If you just take that paragraph and say, oh, this is so clear, this is a terrible thing that anybody is not in school 12 months a year, clearly this is what the Rebbe say. Okay. You read another paragraph, and the Rebbe actually starts saying the very opposite. And that's not uncommon, by the way. (laughs) It's not uncommon that truth should be phrased or formulated as a paradox. Meaning to say contradiction. In fact, the whole Torah, Torah was given in Cheddisha Shlishi, in the third month, right? The Eden left Mitzrayim in Cheddisha that's the first month, Nisan, and then Cheddisha Sheini, which we're in right now, is Eir, and then Cheddisha Shlishi is Sivan. And the idea of Shlishi is not just numerically one, two, three, but Shlishi is the idea of paradox. That's like you have. We say in the Brisa of Rabbi at the beginning of Davening, right? That you have one statement from Torah, and you have an antithetical statement from Torah. When the Kosv HaShlishi comes, and it makes a bigger statement that's able to tolerate both of these opposite things, so then all of a sudden it's like, ah, it wasn't a contradiction at all. I had limited information. So the whole Torah is the idea of shlishi, that when you look at it from one perspective, and then you look at it from another perspective, you say, ah, they can't both be true. And then Torah lifts you up, and from a heightened perspective, you say, ah, oh, they could both be true. Like you ask somebody, uh, you know, were, were you ever uh, in Hawaii? They say, yeah, it was a rainforest. Another guy says, no, no, it was a city, like a normal city. Another guy says, no, it was, uh, it was like uh, an open meadow. Well, how could they all be right? Well, you take a helicopter and you go up and you look down. And you say, oh, here's the, here's the rainforest and here's the city and here's the meadow. So Toyota, as you go up higher and you see there's no contradiction at all. So which one is it? Yeshiva should be open all year or, 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 or yeshiva should be closed and there should be camp. Which one should it be? What's the answer? If Toyota if, if ever asks a question, is it this or is it this? What's the answer? Yes. yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Right? How can you have both? By the way, that's the idea of nimno ha nimno is, That Hashem himself is held back from all holdings back. So <laughs> you can have your cake and eat it too. That's atmos. You can have your cake and eat it too. They can both be true. So here, you read one paragraph and it sounds like the, the Rebbe is saying very clearly, this is a terrible thing that schools close it shouldn't happen at all. And then the Rebbe starts saying, "Well, but then they came up with a, a way of, of remedying that, and they created something called camp. So, so when the school is closed, which it shouldn't be, it definitely shouldn't be closed. But when it's closed, then you go to camp. Okay. So far, it just sounds like you're breaking even. Like you have this problem. You know, you dug a hole and then you filled it back in. You didn't come out ahead." But then the Rebbe says that camp actually, in a way, possesses a quality which is superior to regular yeshiva, like the superiority of a garden over a house. A garden is not a necessity. A house is a necessity. In fact, Chazal say a person who doesn't have a house, it's like he's not even a human being because not to denigrate people who don't have a house. The point is it's such a basic human need to have shelter that when you don't have shelter, you're ice mensch. You feel like your very humanity is lacking. Means it's a basic human need. A house, a garden is not a necessity. Who needs a garden? A garden is pleasure. A garden is you go strolling in the garden. We're not talking about a rinky-dink little garden. We're talking about a real garden, a real place where you can go out and you breathe and feel the expansiveness and you know. <laughs> so that's not a necessity. That that's tainug. But the Rebbe says, the garden and the tainug that it represents is actually a higher level than the house and the necessity that it represents. And the Rebbe even says, it's very interesting, like we can see for ourselves. It's very interesting because you would think that Rebbe would give some type of a deep explanation. But the Rebbe actually gives a very like, uh, accessible, everyday way of understanding it. The Bible says, like you see for yourself, that you leave the house in order to go into the garden. So the person leaves behind the house, which is a necessity, you have to have shelter, in order, because he's drawn, he's attracted to this garden, so he leaves the house, he leaves behind the house, in order to go to this garden, which he doesn't need it, but the pleasure of the garden is even greater. It's so great that it actually draws him to leave the house behind and go out into the garden. And that, the Rebbe says, is the idea of Tainug. The Rebbe says a house is a makif, but the garden is an even greater makif. It's the makif of Tainug. I'm not going to get into all the Exodus here, but the point is, Starts off, and it sounds like the Rebbe is saying it's a terrible thing that camp should even have to exist. And it's a necessary evil that just fills the time. And if 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 the yeshivas would have done it right in the first place, we wouldn't even have to have camp. And then as you're reading, it's clear that actually, Baruch Hashem, we have camp because camp is a higher level than school. Like the garden is a higher level than the house. And why is the garden a higher level than the house? Because of the tainuk. The whole thing is tainuk. You think tainuk, what am I about? Taiva, I need need pleasure, indulgence. Don't dismiss it. Don't dismiss the pleasure. We're not talking about We're not talking about a person who wants pleasure for its own sake. He's not going to do anything with it. He's not going to cash it in. He's not going to capitalize on it and use it for anything productive. We're talking about real Tainuk. Like when the Rebbe deshab wanted to sit in the Kaiser Wilhelm's chair in the gazebo and to soak in the, the beautiful atmosphere and then to have the psich to open up his senses, he could write Hasidus. It's It's not something to dismiss. It's not a guilty pleasure either. Uh, you know, I'm going to indulge a little, I'm going to have a little fresh air, I'm going to run around in the grass, play a little soccer. You don't have to be guilty about it. There's nothing to be guilty about. Tainug is an incredible thing. Pleasure is an incredible thing. Pleasure opens a person up to achieve what they normally could not achieve. And because of the Tainug of camp, it makes it even greater than Yeshiva. Now, I was thinking on the way over here about something I was going to say, but I decided not to say it. But what I'm not going to say is that if the Rebbe says that the difference between camp and school is that camp is pleasure, the Rebbe only speaks positive. I was thinking, is it possible to infer that School is the opposite of pleasure, or, or at the very least, the absence of pleasure. And I don't want to go, I don't want to, I'm not going to go there. But I'm going to say like this. This is what I'm comfortable saying. It's interesting to notice that there are people who go through the system, and now they're adults, and they have negative emotional associations with Yiddish kites. How do I know? Because I trigger those negative associations. I'll get up, a guy looks like me, and I'll say, this week's Parsha, and then that's it. They're gone. They're gone. That's it. People who have negative emotional associations with Yiddishkeit because of their experience, because of schooling, it's very interesting how many of these people, I'm just observing it as a phenomenon, how many of these same people Whatever warmth they do feel for Torah and for is so often a camp memory or camp experience. Like the same people, you get up and you say, this week's Parsha, and they're immediately triggered. But if you start a camp song, they're singing along. Maybe they're even leading the song. So it's very interesting. I'm not saying school is a painful experience for everybody. I'm just saying even for those who may experience it that way, there's something about camp, I mean, the is saying this, that camp is tainug. There's something about camp where the the the, the, tainug, the pleasure, is, is like baked in. It's intrinsic to the whole camp experience. And it's not a small thing to dismiss. It's not a small thing at all. I know we're chesidim, and we like to be, you know... Uh, but a Kathia. <laughs> we 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 like to we like to pretend that we're above pleasure and, and desire. But I gotta tell you something, pleasure and desire are not dirty words. I mean you learn see this, the whole world exists because of pleasure. Because the Abishhthar had a taiva. Nisava did a like the Medish Tandrum, Pashas Nase says, right? So taiva is not a bad thing. Tainung is not a bad thing. Obviously, you can misuse it, you can cheapen it, and you can use it for, for, for things that are, that are meaningless. And then, yes, that's, a, that's something to avoid. But the concept of pleasure itself is an amazing thing. And in a way, like that I was saying in this, in this Fabrengin, Tainug has a power, a healing power, a, a, a power to bring out potential, to raise people up. That you don't find with anything else. So, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit more about this Tainug. You know, the, the, in, in this, this Sikha, the rabbi is saying that the name of Camp Gan Yisrael is Pratis, And therefore, it's significant. And the fact that the name is Gan Yisro, the whole idea of a Gan, like we mentioned before, is the idea of of pleasure. You leave the house to go into the garden for the pleasure. So the Rebbe starts explaining more about this this garden of pleasure. And and, and the Rebbe says, really, the whole world is supposed to be a garden of pleasure. I mean we, we all know Bosiligani, right? a chasikala, right? It's a from Shira Shiram. And you know before it was a mimer, it was a pasuk in Shirashiram, right? yeah. That's where the from. <laughs> there was once a chassid who sat down in a shul and there were no Svarim around, but he saw there was some uh, set of nach, so he grabbed the Shirashiram and he's looking through Shirashiram and he's like, I don't know who wrote this but he stole the whole Kuty Torah." <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, the whole world is a, is a garden of pleasure. Hashem created the world to be a place where he could be, be relaxed, be himself. Think about Golis as Hashem is in yeshiva, and Mashiach is, Hashem goes to camp. Right? I've come into my garden. Ah. Pleasure. Right? So the whole world is supposed to be a garden of pleasure. But it's not yet. Very soon, any second. Mashiach will come, the whole world will be Hashem's garden of pleasure. But here's something what the Rebbe says, you could have, before that time, you could have it in little microcosm, like in a little model of it. And and the Rebbe gives a few examples of it, but one of them is a beautiful image. The Rebbe says, picture the sun. And the sun is shining in the sky. And it's shining down on the ocean, on the sea. And the whole surface of the sea is reflecting the sunlight. And then you look over... And you look at a drop, a single drop of water. Tiny little drop of water. And in that tiny little drop of water, you see a reflection of that same sun. So just like the entire sun can be reflected in the sea, the entire sun, the same sun, could be reflected in a drop. So the Rebbe says... The whole world eventually will be Hashem's garden of pleasure. But you could experience it in like a little bubble, like a little taste of it, a little self-contained sample of what that's going to be like. And that's camp. Camp Gan Yisro, with the emphasis on Gan. That until the whole world is Hashem's garden of pleasure, Camp Gan Yisroel is the model, the preview of what the entire world is going to be like when Mashiach comes. Think about that. Think about, (laughs) when you think about camp, not just as a break from the routine or a way to keep kids busy when there's no yeshiva, but you realize, no, 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 this is much more than that. It's a higher level of Chinuch than goes on the rest of the year. This is Tainug, this is Mashiach. I mean, now you have to ask yourself the question, and I certainly did ask myself this question when I was learning this sicha. If that's true, then you know what we should do? You know what we should do? What? Camp the whole year, right? OK, no question. Camp, 12 months of the year. That's it. Okay. Some people agree. I myself might agree, but I'm being recorded, so I don't know. But here's what I want to say. I don't know that we have to have camp all year long. But I do believe that yeshiva can become more like camp. And if I, think, I think if we understand how yeshiva could be more like camp, it'll also help us understand camp. Because when the Rebbe is describing the tainug of camp, it's not just the fresh air and playing sports and the sun is shining and you're with your friends. It's not all there is to it. There's more to it than that. The Rebbe says the tainug of camp is really the Tainug of Torah. It's really the Tainug of Torah. You understand some people, the way they look at it is, there's my Yiddish kite and there's my fun. So if you learn and you do well on the test, then we're going to take everybody out to the baseball game, right? They're two different things. And we balance the two, and we have both. And the Dev is saying something deeper than that. That my Yiddishkeit and my fun aren't really two separate things. It's one thing. Yiddishkeit is fun, and fun is Jewish. So what, what does that mean? That my Yiddishkeit is fun and my fun is Jewish. More than just the fact that I'm in a nice, relaxing atmosphere and the birds are chirping, and I'm saying deeper than that. <clears throat> so you know, there's a, there's a, an expression in education. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from originally, but. It's true, you see that it's true, so it's a good expression. Tell me and I forget. Show me and I remember. Involve me, I understand. Okay, tell me I forget. Show me I remember. Involve me, I understand. Now, A lot of what happens in school, and it doesn't have to be this way, is a lot of the first thing, a lot of frontal teaching, people talking, people telling other people, usually teacher telling the child, and children forgetting, trying not to forget, trying to memorize as much as they can cram for the short answer test that's supposed to evaluate how well they they learned, right? Whereas camp is all about experiences. It's about living Yiddishkeit. And when Mashiach comes, everything's going to be living Yiddishkeit. When Mashiach comes, you won't have to look in Shulchan Aruch to find out the halacha. You'll look in the world to find out the halacha. (laughs) When Mashiach comes, Jewish law will be as empirically obvious as natural law. You no know natural law means, like if you walk off the edge of the cliff, you're going to fall, right? Because gravity will pull you down. So that you could go test out. You don't have to learn it from a book. You can go learn it from life. When Mashiach comes, you're not going to have to learn from a book. There's something called a malocha on Shabbos. When Mashiach comes, what does it say? That if you try to pick a date on Shabbos after Mashiach comes, the Ta'ina is going to scream out, or the Fig is going to scream out, Shabbos Hayeim. What does that mean? It's like today, if you try to touch a hot stove, the stove screams, Get away, I'm gonna burn you. It doesn't use those words, it uses much more <laughs> effective ways of communicating. It hurts when you touch it, right? So now we're in Gullus. If you wouldn't have learned about that din in a, in a book, you wouldn't know. Like Levi Yitzhak Berdicheva once said, He said, What did you do to the Jewish people? You took all the truth and you hid it in books. You took all the temptations and you put it in the street in front of their eyes. You should have made it the reverse, that you should have hidden the temptations in a book. Someone would have to go find a dusty old book to even find out what a temptation is. And you should have taken all the truth and put it out there in front of our faces when we walked down the street. Then it would have been a fair fight, right? So when Mashiach comes, truth will be; the world will be a classroom of truth. You will be able to learn Hashem's will just by experiencing life. Not from a book, from life itself. But camp is a preview of Mashiach. It's a microcosm of the pleasurable garden that the whole world is going to be very soon. So we can already start to have experiential Yiddishkeit. Not the tell me I forget, not even the show me I remember, but the involve me I understand. And that's why I'm saying, maybe yeshiva can be a little bit more like camp. Maybe first camp has to be more like camp, and then yeshiva will be more like camp, and then the Mashiach can come, and then we can have experiential Yiddishkeit for real. But let me explain what I mean by this. (coughs) My uh, wife and I, when our oldest child was, uh, I think she was eight years old, we made a thing called Tanya Camp. It wasn't really a real camp. It was an after-school extracurricular activity. A bunch of eight-year-old girls, they would come over to our house after school, and uh, we would learn Tanya. But we'd really learn Tanya. I would only learn with them maybe one or two lines per lesson. But the one or two lines they would learn, they wouldn't just hear me say it. They would live it. They would live it. So first lesson, we we skipped pedic, Alf, went to Pettig Base. So I told them, uh, this is an oscilloscope. I had an oscilloscope. You know know what an oscilloscope is, right? No? No. An oscilloscope is an instrument which measures sound waves and represents them visually with basically like a line graph. So you speak into a microphone. And then this monitor will show how loud you're speaking by having the line spike. And if you stop speaking, if you're silent, then the line will drop. It will flatline. That's an oscilloscope. So uh, I, I would show them. You speak into it, oh, hello, ah, ah. and then you see the line jump, you know, and then you be quiet, and then the line goes down. So I showed them that. And then I showed them I had a little jar that we made. The jar was closed on the top, except a little hole for a straw. And in the jar, there was a feather. And what you have to do is blow with the straw. You have to blow into the jar to keep the airflow going in the jar. And when the air will blow into the jar, it picks up the feather. Feather floats on air. And if you stop blowing air into the jar, then the feather falls. Not immediately, it's a feather. It floats a little bit and then it settles down. And the same thing, by the way, to make it fair with the oscilloscope, I didn't tell them this, but I put a little reverb on it. You know what that does by putting a little reverb, like a little echo, because then if I didn't put the reverb on it, then the second they stop speaking, the line will drop. But I put a little reverb on it, so it gives it like an extra half a second so that they can you know, actually catch a breath, they can pause for half a second and the line won't drop. I didn't tell them all that. But at any rate, so I showed them, here's the oscilloscope. Here's the, uh, here's the jar with the feather and the straw. I call up two volunteers. Come on up. So you have one 8-year-old who's on the oscilloscope. You've got to talk. And all you've got to do is just keep talking to keep that line up. Now, if you stop talking, the line's going to fall. You don't have to say anything in particular. You could, you could count to 1,000 and count back down again, do whatever you want. You've got to keep talking and keep that line up. Other eight-year-old kid, here's a little jar, straw, feather. you got to keep blowing into this and keep the airflow going so the feather doesn't drop to the bottom of the jar. And we're going to see who can outlast whom, who can do this for longer. And I would ask the kids, who, who do you think can do this for longer? And usually they would pick a favorite, and usually it had to do... I noticed that whoever was physically bigger, they would assume this person, oh, that's going to be the winner and uh so they would come up there and they would do it and what would happen is after about 90 seconds whoever was blowing into the straw would get winded lightheaded i gotta stop i gotta stop and the person who was talking into the mic was totally fine could just keep going and going and going so i said okay fine let's uh let's get another two volunteers take another two volunteers and we'd ask everyone, who do you think's gonna win? And they would also, they would pick again based on whatever factors they thought were significant. We'd do the same exact experiment and what would happen again? Whoever was blowing into the tube, they would get ex- exhausted. And whoever is talking into the, in the microphone to make the oscilloscope line go up, they could go on and on and on and on. And I'd just keep on doing this over and over again until they would catch on. In fact, sometimes what I'd do is I would take the same two people who just competed and I would switch them. I would say, "Oh, maybe you think it's because this kid is better that you know has more air. Let's switch them." And then what would happen? They would finally catch on. It doesn't matter who's up against whom. Every time whoever is speaking can speak and speak and speak and speak, whoever's blowing is going to get exhausted in 90 seconds. So then I opened up the Tanya. Then I opened up the Tanya, and I showed them. Man the That when you blow, you blow from your inner depths, right? What it says over there that the, the I said that's you. You are Hashem's breath. Everything else in the world you see, Hashem spoke it into being. He can speak and speak and speak all day. You are a part of Hashem, you're his breath, you come from his inner depths, that's how connected you are to Hashem. That they understood. Now you're gonna think maybe this is for eight year olds. I wanna tell you something. So now it's almost a year ago, I don't know if anyone was from this group was learning in 770 last year. Last year? Blocks, you remember the blocks. So they told me to come down a month before Chav Chas Chav of course, the day when the Rebbe came to America, twice, right? Both times. And uh, so they said, you're going to speak to the Bochum. Oh, big Bochum, not, not little kids. Big yeshiva, 770. Post-rabbinical students. So I came down there, anyone who saw, I came down with my block. What are they called? The connect, What? Magnetiles, yeah, magnetiles. I came down with my magnetiles. I put them up on the podium. <laughs> and uh, I start building. And I make a, like a four-story little building with, with magnetiles. And as I'm building and I'm explaining, you know, that Rebbe explained, in Teir Oyer, the Altarebbe speaks about a lever, a lever, that when you want to build, when you want to lift a building, If you get up under it, you could lift the whole thing. If you try to grab it from the top, you'll tear the roof off. But if you get up under it, if you have enough leverage, you could even lift the whole building. And the Rebbe explained that the world, it's not like we think North Pole and South Pole is top and bottom. Eretz Yisrael is on the top. Spiritually, that's the center of the universe. That's the top. You always make aliyah. You go up to Eretz Yisrael, spiritually up. And then everything that's on the opposite side of the world from Eretz Yisrael, it's called the lower half of the globe. So for 99% of Jewish history, everything happened, all the hustle and bustle of Jewish history happened in proximity to the Holy Land. I said, even if your, your great grandparents ended up in Morocco or in Lithuania, it was still within a couple hours flight of Eretz It really only happened the past 100 years that the majority of Jews went over to the other side of the globe, to America. And uh, that's what the they referred to as the bottom the Chotzikadra Tachtoin, the bottom hemisphere, and that in order to finish the job and to bring Mashiach, to lift up the whole world and not only Elam Hazeh Agashmi, the physical universe, but the whole world, meaning all worlds, the entire Seidr Esteralchlis, to lift the whole Seidr Esteralchlis, you got to get up from the bottom. So not just the physical world, but within the physical world itself, the bottom half of the globe. So that's why the Rebbe and the Rebbitzin came down to America. You could think it's because they were fleeing from World War II. But really, it's not what they were running from. It was what they were going to. They went down to the bottom half of the globe. And from there, could lift up the whole world to prepare the world for Mashiach. And then I had my little magnetile building. And I went up. Well, first, I think I pulled it from the top and showed you how the top floor ripped off. Then I went up underneath it, lifted the whole thing. Anyone who was there, I promise you, not only you remember it, but you understand what that means. I teach Tanya in the five towns where Bach Shaman Aman Schlichis and uh, when I teach Perikhof Tess of Tanya. Avachin, I say. There's a, there's a marshal there, a visual image from the Zoya. It says that when a person is complacent, when his animal soul has become complacent and doesn't want to change, it doesn't want to improve, and therefore it can't get inspired, nothing can turn him on, nothing can light his fire. So it says it's like a log, a big thick log. You put a fire on it, it won't catch fire. So what do I do? You can watch it, you go on soulwords.org, go to chapter 29 of Tanya, you can watch the, you can watch the video of it. Took a little log, and I take a little flamethrower, you know what the chefs use for the, you know, in the in the kitchens to scorch the the marshmallow fluff to make the, the meringue or whatever they, they do with, you know, the little fire. So blast it on the on the log. It don't it won't burn. A log's not going to burn from a fire like that. And I take out my axe, <laughs> smashing up the log. Take the fire, shoot it onto the log. oh, now it burns. And then to make it even more exciting. I simulated a grain fire explosion. You ever heard of those? Yeah. Out in the country, in the agricultural areas, they have grain silos. That's where they store all the grain. And a very dangerous thing can happen is if there's a little bit of wind, like a gust of wind, it scatters the grain. It makes like a dust cloud of grain. If there's a spark, those things will explode, like literally like like a rocket ship. And um, so what I did, I took a jar. Well, first, before I took the jar, I took a clump of flour, put a clump of flour on the table and I put the fire on it, shoot the fire on the, and you see it it won't burn. Because when it's a clump of flour, when it's just sitting there like a clump, it won't burn. But what do you have to do? Mavacinoise, you have to scatter it. You have to make it into little pieces. So if, if it's just sitting there as one clump, it'll never burn. But if you can take the same little specks of flour and you scatter them and each one is separate, then it burns very well. So I took the same clump of flour, it won't burn at all. Put the fire on it, won't burn. Take it, move it into this jar. The jar had a little hose. And I injected some air in there. Air comes in, pops a little, you know, uh, like a cloud, makes a little cloud out of the dust, and uh, out of the flour, it turns like a little cloud of dust. And uh, there's a spark, just a little spark of, of fire there. It'll shoot. Flames. I mean, you can watch the videos where I shoot flames like three feet into the air. I was wearing goggles when I did it, brother, just in case any kids would imitate me. I just put on the goggles. Okay. Um, what's my point? My point is that our Judaism is fun and our fun is Jewish and that means a lot of things. Yes, it also means just it, being in a pleasant place, being in a relaxing atmosphere. Also, it means, I hate to even mention this. I don't even think it needs to be mentioned, but a little bit of the Sumerah. And that's, I'll just say, one sentence. Obviously, it's understood that because the entire value and preciousness and the unique quality of camp is the pleasure of it, it goes without saying that no child should ever have an unpleasurable incident or experience in camp. The entire purpose is that it should be pleasant for them. It goes without saying. That, that's all I'll say about that, but just remember, sometimes it's more important that a child should just feel good than your activity runs on time, or the way that you thought that it was going to run, or whatever it may be. The whole power of camp is the tainug, so that has to be first and foremost. That's not a side point of camp, that's like, that's the tachlis, that's the whole point of it. But at any rate, that, that, I said that was the Sumerah. As far as the asay toiv, I think we have to look for opportunities to make Yiddishkeit, Posh, it come alive. So that campers will realize that Torah is Tainug. Tainug is Torah. Yiddishkeit is fun. Fun is Jewish. They're not two separate worlds. Not even two things that I balance. I have a little Yiddishkeit, then I have a little fun. And then I try to keep the balance between them. No, that they could actually experience it in a Mashiach way. The way it'll be when Mashiach comes. It'll be the ultimate Tainug and it'll be the ultimate revelation of Torah. And like the Rebbe said, camp is a place where we can experience that now. Camp is a place like a little drop of water that reflects the whole sun just as much as the sea reflects the sun. Camp is a place where in microcosm, we can already be holding by Mashiach. So I just want to encourage everyone to really, really put yourselves. It's 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 hard work. It's look, it's much easier to. Uh, <laughs> I have to be careful what I say here. Um, the normal paradigms. Okay, I, you know what the heck. I'm just going to say it. Listen. The, the normal paradigms, the way people have been doing things, most everybody is aware that it's not exactly working. There are wonderful people doing wonderful things, but everyone's pretty much on the same page now that we've got to shake things up a little bit. right? And, and, and we're scared to shake things up because obviously, God forbid, we don't want to do anything wrong. But let me tell you where we can't go wrong. We can't go wrong by making Yiddishkeit more experiential, by making learning more real, more hands-on, more practical. And by the way, when I mean practical, I don't mean that you always have to bring in props. I didn't bring in props today, right? But using a mushel is a prop. It's not an actual physical prop. It's a, it's a conceptual prop. But using a mushel, right? Or using the most examples from, from a child's life, that, that's called experiential Judaism. It can be verbal. It doesn't. You don't always have to run out and buy materials. Um, I know last year... In, in Detroit, they built the whole, I told them how to build it, they built the whole scale to, to, learn, the, the, to, to learn the Rambam. The Rambam about the, the whole world is like a scale, so they built this big, giant scale, right? Okay, so that's beautiful. You don't, it doesn't always have to be a physical prop. It could be something you explain verbally, but you know, I'll tell you, by the way, there's a shliech, who I know who grew up in London, and I believe that by the time it was his bar mitzvah, Bar Mitzvah bachim no longer could have Yechidus, but Orchim could in certain circumstances. So he figured out a way to to get a Yechidus. And it was around the time of his Bar Mitzvah. Anyways, so he goes into the Rebbe, and the Rebbe asked him what he's learning. And he tells him Kiddushim. So the Rebbe asked him simple questions of Kiddushim, you know, the how 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 is a woman married... And then he, and he answered. And then the Rebbe asked him, you know, How much is money? You know, to uh, to marry a woman." So he says, to him, bishame And he said, "Yeah, okay. What do they say?" He tells him. And uh, then the Rebbe asks him, How much is it?" And he told him, "What is it? or whatever." So. The Rebbe says, <laughs> He was from London. He says, <laughs> Like, how much is that in English money? He had no idea. I don't think his malamed told him. His malamed may not have even known. If you ask the malamed, How much is that in English money? How many pounds is that? Oh, I don't know. that's not Tainug. (laughs) When you're learning something that you have no idea how to relate to, that's not Tainug. But when you learn something and you realize how real it is, how relevant it is, that really, ultimately, what you're learning is you're learning about yourself. And By the way, if you ever want to understand what's what's the simple meaning of the Kabbalistic concept that the Jewish people in Torah are one, Right. We know the desire say Yisrael, kol We know the name Yisrael is connected. The Rebbe actually mentions this in the Sicha I was mentioning before, Chopov Mem Gimel, where the Rebbe says Yisrael is Yesh the 600,000 letters of the Torah corresponding to 600,000 soul roots of the Jewish people. So the idea of the Jewish people and Torah are one. It's a very Kabbalistic concept, but in, in practical terms, what does it mean? that that Jews and Torah are one. You know what I mean? That if you want to understand yourself, if you want to know who you are, you want to get in touch with who you really are, your real personality, your real gifts, you do that through learning Torah. Now that's incredibly, Validating, that's a liberating idea. That's a very evoking idea. That when I'm learning Torah, not only is it not learning something abstract or irrelevant that I can't relate to, it's the opposite. When I'm learning Torah, I'm gaining insight into myself. What does everybody want? Everyone wants to know, I mean, eventually. I mean, I don't know how, how old you guys are. Eventually, you come to a point where you you're Like who am I? I got to figure that out before I can, you know. I I, I can't keep faking it. I got to have a little bit. It, it, it has to be real. It has to be me. It has to be authentic. And and what I'm telling you is, when you learn Torah properly, when you learn Torah properly, a yid and Torah are one. That is how to come to have insight about yourself and your purpose, and what life's all about, and what really matters. But the problem is, when people have been exposed to Toyota in a way where it felt irrelevant, it felt, you know, the the old joke if the guy was in the hot air balloon, and he was lost. He had no compass. He had no map. So he's trying to figure out how to get back to the base camp. But he didn't know where he was. He saw a guy down below in a field. So he calls down below to him, and he says, you, down below. The guy from the hot air balloon. He screams down below. He says, "You down below? Do you know where I am?" The guy down below says, "Yes, you're in a hot air balloon." He says, "Yeah, Shekoyah, I know I'm in a hot air balloon. Like, describe like my, my location. Where am I?" He's like, "You're about a hundred yards off the ground." He's like, "That I could see from. I see how high I am up there." I'm asking. I'm asking, like my location. He's like, "You're over my yard." He's like, "Yes, I know." So he gets frustrated. The guy in the hot air balloon says to the guy on the ground, he says, listen, can I ask you a question? Are you a rabbi? The guy's like, yeah, I'm a rabbi. How do you know I'm a rabbi? He says, well, I figured it out because since the moment I met you, everything you've told me has been 100% true and totally irrelevant to my situation. (laughs) So, And I hate to say that joke. It's a cynical joke. But that's the opposite of tainug. I want to tell you something. Boredom irrelevancy wondering what you're doing and why you're learning what you're learning can be more painful than than an actual type of pain it's 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 it's, it's. and and what it does is is the opposite of psychic Psycha sachushim means I'm alive and I feel things and I figure things out and I'm creative and my juices are flowing and I and I, and I want to do things and I want to accomplish things. That's, that's when I feel tiny. That's when I'm enjoying life and I'm enjoying the Torah that I'm learning. When you when you're bored and you're frustrated and you don't even know what you're staring at four walls, figuring, trying to figure out what am I doing here? It causes the opposite of psychosakhoshim. <laughs> it, it makes your chushim, makes your senses close down and it and, and, and it causes dullness. And it causes confusion. It causes people who, are, who don't even know who they are, and they, they don't even know what life's about. And they, 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 I mean, they hear what life's about. They hear the rallying cry. They hear the slogans. They try to get themselves excited, but they don't feel alive. So what I'm telling you is, camp is Mashiach. Camp needs to be more camp. The yeshivas need to be more camp. The whole world needs to be more camp. And that means, in case anyone missed my point, real, enjoyable, fun, hands-on, experiential Yiddishkeit, where everything I learn, nigla, this, whatever I'm learning, it feels real and relevant, and it's about me. And it's exciting, and there's discovery, and there's newness. That's Mashiach. So you have the opportunity. I was told that represented in this relatively small room here tonight, represented here are 3,000 campers. Is that number true? That's what I heard. There are three. Collectively, the bochem in this room tonight represent the summer of 3,000 Jewish children. Can you imagine this summer, as a summer of Mashiach, of living, vibrant, exciting, fun Yiddishkeit—not fun and Yiddishkeit, but Yiddishkeit is my fun. My fun is my Yiddishkeit. That's Mashiach. And you guys, with your creativity and your hard work, you pulled out this—you pulled off this event. So clearly, creativity and hard work are not lacking around here. With your hard work, with your creativity, with, with you coming alive, with your Psicha achushim, with your tainug, your geschmack, you're gonna make tainug and geschmack for these 3,000 children. And that's Mashiach. Okay, thank you.